the republic, a governmental system where presidents are nominated and elected by the people. Ideally, they're democracies that allow the people to elect legislatures who best represent their interests and echo their concerns. Some republics execute these two objectives beautifully, while others either backslide into despotism or devolve into democracies by description, but not in reality. One such democracy in name only is known as the Dystopian Republic. That republic is the Republic of Brumelia. Brumelia is a nation roughly the size of California. It was part of North America until a rift opened up and broke it off from the rest of the continent, stranding it in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Brumelia declared its independence from Mexico on October 15, 1844. It's a country that has gone through the brightest of highs and darkest of lows throughout its years of sovereignty, and so have the residents of its territories, provinces, municipalities, and localities. But to truly see what those ups and downs look like, you have to experience them from the points of view of the Brumelian people. As for what their daily lives are like, Let's just say it depends on who they are, where they're at, and when their lives are taking place. And I, Raul Guerrero, your host, will take you through their stories. Our story for today begins on the afternoon of February 27th, 2009. A breezy cold sunshine loomed over the capital, Brumelia City, located in La Cordillera del Este. Its coastal outside sparkled with prosperity as luxury cars and well-dressed residents rolled down its streets and walked down its sidewalks. That prosperity was a blur for what lurked on the inside, an inner-city rift with impoverished Soviet-like blocks, relics of Brumelia's days under communist rule. The poverty in the blocks and outside them would put the poverty in Detroit to shame. There was little hope for success in these parts and more of a focus on just getting by. Apartment Block 22, a housing project geared to the elderly, was no exception to that rule. In Room 748, all was quiet until cousins, Austin, Andre, Arlo, and Avery Palencia came back from school, robin faces, hoodies and all. The four teens were almost two months into the latter half of their freshman year of high school. Their latest day of school, like all others, served them bullying for breakfast and chastising for lunch. Its servings were two they were used to having shoved down their throats. They've been a tight-knit bunch since their parents were all killed in a drive-by shooting on New Year's Eve 1998, leading their grandmother Maya to care for them ever since. Maya was a retired coal miner who lived with black lung disease from her five decades of working in the mines of País del Carbón. Unsurprisingly, her struggle for a steady, full breathing pattern meshed her grandkids in a dejected yet merry swirl. It took Maya four seconds and four valiant breaths to reciprocate that emotional spiral. She wasn't bedridden, but her pain was such that she might as well have been. Her smile radiated a glee that wiped their worriments away. It was a grin that showed her strength against an illness that she's been living with for the better part of a decade. She greeted them as one, as softly and as lovingly as she could. After taking a deep whistling breath, she asked them how their school day went. Her kids proceeded to give her the normal like always spiel. 
desperate to hide from her their angst as to not add to her already debilitating pain. As for Maya, she's been fighting her brutal asthma like a lioness and was thankful for her retirement as it stopped her disorder from ruining her financially. Her illness made her focus on who she had rather than what she had. She viewed her kids as angels who've given her four reasons to still be on this earth. The feelings they had for her weren't much worse. Their orphan statuses made them care only about what she thought of them and view her as that saintly being who saved their family. The two envelopes Austin handed Maya were from the Social Insurance Corporation of Blue Melia, or known pejoratively as Sickbee, and from Xander Kirchner Jr., her landlord. They represented the best and worst times of every month, insurance and rent. In the interest of starting on a high note, she decided to open the insurance one first, it was yet another monthly check for $2,500, which Maya expected to get, as that has been her monthly income since first retiring two years earlier. It was just enough to pay for her rent, medications, groceries, and utilities, leaving her with cents to spare. Those cents she was able to save, she put in a piggy bank, the coins of which she'd spend on spoiling her kids to what little extent she could. But unbeknownst to them, that piggy bank was not her only source of savings. In any event, her check wasn't what she wanted it to be, but it's hers and it'll cover all her expenses for the next 30 days. With that in mind, she turned to the envelope from Xander, and what she uncovered rendered her speechless, and not in a good way. When Austin asked her what was wrong, Maya gave her an answer that ran the blood in her and the blood in her cousins cold. It was a notice of a hike in the rent from $1,600 to $2,000, effective March 1st, the due date of her rent bill for February. Maya knew there was no way she could pay that bill, a full $400 greater than what she could afford. Her grandkids knew what that meant for their skins. This wasn't the first time they were in this predicament. They've been evicted once before. That eviction dumped them on the streets, where for a whole year, they were down and out. Their destitute ordeal was one of empty stomachs, cuts and bruises, dumpster diving, and hobo bashings, culminating in a cold, late night that physically and sexually changed Austin's life forever. While Austin's ordeal was the worst, it wasn't the only one that left them with skin-breaking scars unlikely to heal completely. It was a year they vowed never to relive, and they'll be damned if a blowhard like Xander dumps them on the street. Having said that, they understood that fighting him head-on would bang them up. Xander was an alpha male frat kid, the chubby son of a real estate mogul and former Miss Blue Melia. Xander had no qualms about seeing to it that the delinquents in his block were dealt the fists of law and order, like Basilio Espinal and Ainara Lira, a teen couple they overheard trying to beat his tail, only for him to callously beat and arrest them. The laugh Xander got out of their howling scared them into sparing him of their hitting. It was no question to them that Xander wouldn't face any repercussions for beating those two kids. In fact, Basilio and Ainara were likely to suffer additional punishment 
for giving one of Brumelia's shining stars a black eye. A longtime friend of law enforcement, Xander formed bonds with many of the officers, who themselves had their own skeletons in their closets. To police, he was one of their greater assets in their perpetual war on crime. Xander was fully aware that he had all the power and that Basilio and Ainara had none of it. Still in all, the cousins somehow had to come up with $400 in 48 hours. Working was out of the question, as that wouldn't make them the money they need in time for the rent. Also out of the question was begging for money, as the locals weren't known for taking too kindly to beggars, oftentimes attacking them publicly. This got Maya to suggest that her kids pickpocket the first yuppie they could find downtown. Her suggestion knocked them to six, as it was so unlike Maya to suggest they do something that's not only criminal, but feloniously so. Maya grew up in a hamlet where she knew everyone and everyone knew her. Its small population and inordinate isolation disincentivized her from even thinking about committing the most minor misdemeanor. She instilled those disincentives in her grandkids the whole time she's known them. But like many who grew up there, her fear was non-breakable until she left town to mine coal. Once she left town, she was at the mercy of the Brumelian coal industry. In any case, Maya's kids responded to her suggestion with a resounding nay, reproving her for wanting them to risk Juvie over a few hundred bucks which in Brumelia would not make for a pleasant stay, to say the very, very least. Maya countered their reproving by telling them that she knew about their little five-finger hobby. Her sleight of voice had their censorious tones flying away like scared birds. They spared no impulse in asking her how she found out. Maya sussed their hobby out years ago when it took on a life of its own in the form of a rival's past curfew excess groceries and dollars left over. She couldn't quite figure it out until she saw printer paper images of what looked like her kids on the walls of various mini markets and snack shops. She didn't need to see their faces to figure out that they were the thieves. That said, she was cognizant of why they'd risk their freedom to commit all those small-time thefts. Her kids have long had a soft spot for people who couldn't afford food and water. They stole all the food and drinks they could to ensure that one less person went hungry or thirsty. That was a motive benevolent enough to win her stamp of approval. Their thieving now exposed Austin, Andre, Arlo, and Avery passionately, hesitantly, sternly, and obligatorily took up her suggestion. Though unified in their affirmation, their motives for affirming differed to varying extents. For instance, Austin desired power over those with authority and or wealth. At no point in 15 years was she ever able to play them like pianos, like they always played her. The hatred she had for those powerful people was immeasurable. The intense dislike and ill will in her heart was in the hearts of countless other kids across the country. Andre, however, didn't opt in for himself, but rather opted in for his clan. His cousins and grandma were by his side since he started walking. The indebtedness he felt toward them. 
the whole Brumelian lot felt for their clans, also fueling that fidelity was his mutual intimacy with Austin that's made them tighter than a bowstring. Arlo wanted to take his thieving career to the next level. His addiction to stealing was such that he couldn't imagine living without it. The goods it brought to his hooks were luxuries previously out of his reach. His idea fix for personal security was the murder hornet in the bonnets of Brumelians the world over. As for Avery, she joined only because it was her duty as a Palencia. The gratitude she owed, Maya, outdid her indifference to Andre and Arlo, an antipathy for Austin. Had Maya not ever been in the picture, she'd desert her cousins in a heartbeat. Her cousins treated her in ways that made them lose face with her, and ultimately lost them her esteem. Meanwhile, Maya had her own agenda to set into motion, and it had to do with her mortality. Death was never something she embraced, but it wasn't a state she was afraid of falling into. But what did keep her up at night was how fate would treat her children. At 8, that night, the life of night was in full swing in Brumel's Square. Citizens of wealth and affluence roamed its streets and frequented its places of entertainment and leisure. The square's glitz and glamour hid a vicinity of alleyways, home to all sorts of shady people, activities, and establishments. Two miles west of downtown, a public parking lot sat right in its blind spot. A rich clique of 20-somethings, led by Robbie Moretto IV, took it over, bribing the attendants to leave them be. They spent the time smoking cigars, drinking beers, and boasting about beating out a black kid's daylights. Regal emblems tattooed their yearning for Brumelia's years under fascism. Not a pen dot of shame showed on any of their faces. The dignities they showed and voiced were as solid as rock. For Austin and company, who those men were made them perfect for their sticky fingers. From each corner, the kids crouched out of sight, holding their pouncing impulses. Six minutes went by before Robbie took out his two wallets and placed them on the hood of his car. At that moment, the kids let their impulses go, accelerating them to warp speed. Doped up on privilege, believing themselves unassailable, the guys never saw them coming. That internalized arrogance shattered like glass. The second four sheet metal slaps hit their eardrums. By the time they knew what was up, the kids were already running into the night with Robbie's wallets. Embarrassed and full of ire, Robbie and his men gave chase, but it didn't take long for the kids' agility to convince them to call it off. But in chasing them, they learned that those kids were the hooded thieves they'd been hearing about on the news. That discovery made it clear to them who they were dealing with and where they lived. At home, Maya was wrapping up her phone call when her kids returned with the wallets. Confirming twice what she knew they had in them, she held them in her hands as if they were her golden tickets. The credit and debit cards, plus the hundreds in cash, made that all the more true. No words could describe how relieved and powerful they all felt that night. The money they had was enough to pay their rent for the next four months. And on top of that, they had the satisfaction of really sticking it to a coterie of overprivileged ghouls. But unbeknownst to them, their unjust desserts were already in the works. 
After school let out the following Monday, the kids walked happily toward a strip mall. Each of them had dollars they stole from other students throughout the day. Their plan was to buy a gallon tub of ice cream for them to share with Maya in celebration of their payment of the rent. They weren't worried about the police catching wind of their serial thieving, although the increased media attention was a concern. There was little doubt that the heat had intensified and that it was time for them to put their hobby on hiatus until the heat wore off. In a parked vehicle nearby, a man watched them walk into the dollar store via binoculars. Pop tunes soundtracked their amble down an aisle of toys. A row of toy electric guitars on the top shelf stopped their amble, modeled by a girl getting her pop star on. To most, she was just a ploy by marketers to entice little girls into buying their toys, but to them, she represented what Austin did before she was taken advantage of sexually. The distress Andre, Arlo, and Avery felt paled in comparison to the distress Austin felt. Her mind returned to those eight hours, the worst in her whole life bar none. The unwanted ogling, groping, stripping, wrestling, punching, copulating, and discarding. It all played like a film too extreme for even the smuttiest of shelves. A depraved flick it surely was, rolling tears down Austin's cheeks, feeling her pain, Andre ordered Arlo and Avery to go pick out the ice cream while he tended to her. With Arlo and Avery obliging, Andre could now painkill Austin's mindly scars. He lovingly caressed her clavicle in an effort to null her scars' nociceptors. His gentle hand lured her into his commiserative gaze, shallowing her sorrow. Andre vehemently assured her that no part of that abominable attack was her fault. His strong feelings brought her ocean-deep sorrow down to a tearfully grinning puddle. Their moment distracted them from the auto caravan slithering into the mall. Eight men in suits stepped out and approached the store heavily armed. Their austere entry froze the kids and cashier right where they were. The kids trembled under the muzzles of the men's semi-automatics. The shock flowing in their veins was as extreme as extreme could be. They fought wholeheartedly that nobody else would feel their collars. With no way out, they apprehensively staggered to the men with their hands up. The cashier is handed a bundle of hundreds by the men to keep his mouth shut. In response, he let them exit with the kids without so much as a second thought. The kids saw their chance to get away, but so did their kidnappers, chloroforming them before they could run. No one indoors or outdoors dared to intervene, fearing a similar fate. After stuffing the kids into different cars, their abductors steadily made their getaway. The men drove west, out of Brumelia City, and up the hills of the upper-class town of Clemente. Premium shops, eateries, and estates embodied its uber wealth. Its obscene riches masked the abandoned indigence that was Clemente a century ago. Shacks and cabins, built from wood or brick, lined the winding forested roads. It was indicative of the town's former identity as a shanty town. Laying on the grass-cracked concrete, the kids' eyes unblurred to a decrepit brick patio. 
its isolation float a chilling enfeeblement all the way down their bodies. Robbie creepily welcomed them to the tavern his great-grandparents owned, beating their hearts non-stop. That was when the direness of the predicament they were in hit them. It reminded them of that raw, uncensored video of an interrogation by a drug cartel they saw on the internet a little while back that ended in the victim's throat being slit. That heinous video was produced at an ex-tavern, much like the one they were in presently. The kids discerned that there, where the victim was during his life's last minutes, they were certain the tavern was as heavily guarded as the one where the victim met his end. Their chances of getting out of their captivity, alive, were almost nil. The most they could do was drag Robbie down the pit of death they're about to fall into. Speaking of whom, he contemptuously asked them if they stupidly thought he wouldn't come for them. They replied that they surely expected a fascist like him to try and get them. But what they didn't anticipate was him making good on that effort. He heaped scorn on them for daring to think that stealing from him was going to be like stealing from all the others they've robbed from. That scorn went off on them more noisily than an M80 explosive, blowing to burnt shards the armor of indemnity they were so sure was shatterproof. That submerged them kilometers into their carcerophobia, a phobia caught by his olfactory glands. But to their surprise and puzzlement, turning them in was the last thing he had on his mind. Also not on his mind was asking them for his wallets back. He presumed they spent all the cash he had, hence why he preemptively closed all his old cards and opened new ones, ensuring he beat them to his balances in checking and savings. He thought it was pointless to have them locked in cells for a prison term within the law. The juvenile detention system in Brumelia was mostly a chain of battering houses built to have its prisoners turn new leaves by beating and bullying them into worthlessness, wishing they hadn't committed their crimes. Even so, it was his view that if he had them put in juvie, they'd come for his head after serving their time. That was how his baby brother Lori met his final exit, nearly a year to the day, and no way would he allow Lori's fate to also be his. The scowls he saw in them were the same scowls that Laurie's tweenage killers gave him in the courtroom. His removal of his blazer, tie, and dress shirt, and cracking of his knuckles made it clear to them what was coming, flashing their life of thieving before their eyes. That life began accidentally on a rainy January night in 2004. The kids hobbled their glum jogging from a mini-mart after a heartfelt argument and altercation with the cashier lady, but the scars they acquired all clotted in full when they found water purification tablets and chocolate bars in their pockets. The tablets and bars were their telltale that they'd five-fingered a march on their cashier foe, title-waving and inspirited flagitiousness that made them want to keep stealing and never stop. Though Arlo was the true theft addict, his cousins weren't far behind in their addictions. Their addictions had them embark on a cross-country five-fingering spree. That spree moved furtively up, down, and around the aisles of grocery shops, 
food marts, and snack bars. Their steps and motions were everyone else's, shielding them from the prying eyes of employees and other shoppers. By the time workers knew what hit them, the kids were long gone with their stolen goods. Their initial steals went by without a hitch and without detection before and during the fact. But when photos of the Robin Bird dress started showing up, that was when they took their stealing municipal to the big box surveillance stores where their tactics changed. In those stores, Austin window shopped through the various food aisles. Andre searched for items he could buy with the few coins he had. Avery purposely got all the cameras on her by moving like a booster, giving Arlo the cover he needed to make the actual steals. In league, their exits were as orderly and innocent as their entries. But no matter where they went, they gave most of what they stole to the down and outs, whose lives depended on those stolen foods. The gratitude they received cleared their consciences, providing a rationale for their illicit almsgiving. Though their fates cometh, the lives they've saved or extended had them at peace. They violently lunged at Robbie like killer bees bent on dropping down their lives, stinging their target to death. Then, the fight broke to a bashing, cracking, and blood-splatting stop before it even began. Robbie stood frozen in his greatly shocked, knee-bent stagger, seeing Austin carry a brick covered in fresh, warm blood and pieces of bone on the floor by his feet. Finding himself bleeding pines out of his temple, he collapsed like a house of cards. The kids quickly squatted and shielded their brains and hearts, bracing for their lead spraying expiries, courtesy of the men who abducted them. Seconds went by, and not one bullet fired, nor had one voice, footstep, or motion sounded. That prompted the kids to cautiously and slowly hatch out of their shielding squats. The forest's ambient calm made it plain that their kidnappers were nowhere in sight, and that Robbie was their lone captor all this time. Their bodies slumped as bonding oxytocins stilled their adrenals. But then, they caught sight of Robbie stormily clinging to life. His blood-soaked look up at them secreted his deep regret over thinking he could take them on by himself. In hindsight, he wished he hadn't declined the men's offer to stand guard just to save a few thousand bucks, money he planned to blow, on bottled cognac. At death's door, he couldn't help but blame his elite family for putting him there. From birth, he was fed a rapaciously iniquitous diet of illiberalism, racialism, and plutocracy. The monies and luxuries all around him couldn't bribe him into enjoying his familial durance. All his riches did was get him to treat his family's thrall like a job he hated but had to do. Be that as it may, he was still a steadfast ultra-nationalist who wore the Brumelian Yellow Cross as if it was a part of his DNA. The yellow jacket he inherited from his great-grandfather kept his loyalty to the Maretto name alive, even if he deemed them at fault for his undoing. Yet, that realization did not ready him for the sadistic, open-mouthed smile Austin gave him. From ear to unsettled ear, her chance to play someone of power like a piano stared her in the face. Coming as a complete and utter shock, her smile rendered her cousins motionless. She bashed him before he could push himself up, egg-cracking the left third of his skull. 
his mortally hurt convulsing radicaled its distressing roots into her cousins' soft spots. Her cousins had no love for him, but seeing him suffer was too much for their souls to handle. But before they could step in, Austin took Robbie and laid him face upward. She bludgeoned his skull single-handedly and double-handedly, each blow splatting blood on top of what the last splatted. Her blows went on and on before her exhaustion stopped at a tetradecimal and a half. She knelt on all fours, savoring the blood all over her clothes, face, hair, and exposed skin. His hideous lifelessness knocked her cousin sideways. Her wholesomely macabre grin sent sub-zero chills down their spines. The girl staring at them wasn't the cousin they knew their whole lives, but was instead a homicidal, bloodthirsty freak. Displeased by their spinal chills, Austin derided them for being naive enough to even fathom snitching her out, given they stood idly by while she bashed Robbie's skull in. She helped them remember how cynical the cops were of paupers like themselves, and that if they're taken into custody, they'll never be let out of that arrest. Her words considered, they unrelentingly yielded to her line of thinking, realizing that she and Maya were their only remaining champions in this world. She extended her bloody arms out in want of a cousinly hug, thinking it will set in stone their fealty to the Palencia name. Her cousins hung back, but ultimately embossomed her as firmly as they physically could. The blood all over Austin was all over Andre, Arlo, and Avery too, making their complicity definite. At the same time, it ascended their bond to a plane eons higher than any difference that's ever blemished their blood relationship. But as fate would have it, their bond, while tungsten tough, would not be prepared for the trials it would face in the weeks, months, and years that followed its second ascension. Nevertheless, only time will tell whether that bond will endure or succumb to those trials. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was The Hooded Robins. Thank you for humbling me with your listening ears, and please be sure to share this show to as many people as you can. And on that note, I'm Raul Guerrero, and come again for another episode of The Dystopian Republic.